Welcome to Child Trends on Topic, a new podcast series that explores the most pressing issues related to youth and families. I'm your host, John Lingen, recording at our headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. This is our first episode, so I'd like to take a minute to introduce the concept. Child Trends is the nation's leading nonprofit research organization focused exclusively on improving the lives and prospects of children, youth, and their families. This podcast series is a chance for us to position that work within broader conversations about child well-being. We'll hear from our own in-house experts, but we'll also bring in outside voices from the research, policy, and direct service worlds. Above all, we want to show that data and research have real-world effects. They can shape new ideas, inspire new practices, and help us see challenges in innovative ways. Today, few challenges loom as large as the global refugee crisis. Spurred in part by catastrophes in South America and Syria, there were an estimated 21.3 million refugees in 2015, the highest number of all time. A little more than half of these displaced people were children. In our recent report, Moving Beyond Trauma, Child Migrants and Refugees in the United States, Child Trends researchers look specifically at the young people who arrive here. Upon entrance, these children are classified according to their circumstances. They might be a refugee, an asylum seeker, or a migrant. Each category is entitled to different legal and even physical procedures, but in most cases, they all have the same basic needs. Dr. David Murphy is the lead author of Moving Beyond Trauma, and he joined me to discuss its findings and implications. We started by addressing who these children actually are, where they come from, and what they are seeking. It's a really diverse uh, group, as you might imagine. I mean, we tend to hear most about uh, refugees, and uh, many of them now coming, of course, from uh, from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Northern Africa. But actually, nearly three times as many children as are admitted to the U.S. as refugees are children who are fleeing violence and other adversities um, from Central America. So we're talking about Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. These are children who are fleeing, they're coming to the U.S. uh, either accompanied by one or more family members or in some cases unaccompanied. Can you tell us a little bit about what that future entails? I know that detention is often the the first line of response. Right. Well, of course, these children are considered by the U.S. Border Control as illegal entrants to the U.S., so often they will spend uh, a time in detention. And uh, depending upon the particular circumstances, they may be able to apply for asylum, which is... uh, akin to refugee status, but it's the term used uh, for uh, those individuals who are already in the United States and uh, seeking refugee status. Or they they may be placed in the custody of uh, the Office for Refugee Resettlement, which is a federal agency. From, from there, uh, that office attempts to find them a suitable placement, either with family members who are living in the United States or with uh, other approved care providers. And frankly, some of the evidence uh, that has been emerging is is, uh, is troubling in the, to the extent that some of these placements uh, have not been adequately vetted and children have ended up 
in some circumstances where uh, really their safety and uh, well-being have been uh, compromised. It's a very tenuous, uh, shaky situation for these children. Until they can be reunited with their parents or other close family members, they're really quite, quite uh, vulnerable to various kinds of trauma. You mentioned that there are a number of different designations that children might receive when they enter. How does the experience differ based on that standing once they arrive? And then once they arrive in the, in the U.S., refugees and asylees are eligible for quite a generous number of services within the communities that they resettle, including access to, to many public assistance programs that we're familiar with, uh, whether it's uh, SNAP or food stamps or whether it's eligibility for uh, child care and, and so on. Uh, health insurance, but children who don't have that authorized status uh, in the United States are are really shut out of many services. They can still attend K through 12 public schooling. They're eligible for a few other forms of assistance, but it's it's uh, it's a much less supportive uh, set of services that they're eligible for. And in fact, uh, many of these children live in a state of of anxiety that either they will be removed from the United States or their parents will be removed from the U.S. So what might a more equitable treatment look like? What type of services do all of these children need and how might we go about providing those for them? Well, this is, of course, this is a controversial issue uh, and people across the political spectrum differ in how they how they come down on it. But I think most people would agree that children have fundamental rights to safety, uh, physical safety, and to some form of legal representation. Many of these children that we're talking about and their, and their families in some cases often uh, go through hearings in immigration court without benefit of legal counsel often without even benefit of a translator. So uh, you can imagine that due process is, is, is often given fairly short shrift. We also uh, would, would urge that all children, except in the most extreme circumstances, not be separated from their parents because the presence of parents with a child is, is so critical to many aspects of their well-being. And last, I guess I would mention that the, the communities that are welcoming these uh, newcomer children should have uh, adequate resources to help them prepare for those children and to and to help them get integrated within their communities. And we know that when that happens well, children who are immigrants often come to make many positive contributions to our community. So it's in our best interest to, to really smooth the way for these children who are arriving in such a vulnerable state and to help help them make the transition to, to become healthy and contributing uh, parts of their communities. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks. So what would a more equitable, humane response to migrant and refugee children actually look like? For that, I spoke with Sarnata Reynolds, an international human rights lawyer and director of the consulting firm Strategy for Humanity. Ms. Reynolds is a renowned expert on migrant and refugee rights, and I began by asking her about the major policy obstacles to children's well-being when they cross the United States border. First of all, detention is a terrible thing to do to someone who's traumatized, and obviously there's so many studies on that, and it's obviously even worse for children. It's even worse for people who suffered um, torture, people who have PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. So a policy of detention is probably one of the worst things you could do to a person, and it is, it's basically a U.S. policy of first option. It's 
almost always the first resort. What would the alternative be? Well, there are lots of alternatives. Um, I mean, first of all, even in U.S. law, there's supposed to be a right to liberty. So the U.S. has the duty, the right to determine who's entered the country and whether they suppose a security or or a risk to the public interest. But once they have established that, and usually it doesn't take actually that much time, but if it takes longer, it takes longer. Once they've established that, those people should be released. Mm -hmm. Now, the U.S. immigration system has in the past worked where release was um, quite possible and oftentimes required a bond. So basically, okay, we're going to release you, but you or your family or friends are going to have to put up, let's say, $5,000 to ensure that you come back for your removal hearings or your immigration court hearings, and that's fine. It permits uh, release, which is really important. There's also something, there's this whole actually series of um, practices called alternatives to detention. And um, there are a lot of actually different types of pilot projects in the United States. So for instance, where um, children in particular and families are released and a community says, we will we'll basically be the ones that watch out for them, uh, make sure that they have what they need and make sure that they know when they have court and that they're willing to turn up. And those programs have been shown to work over and over again. They're, they're really successful. They're hardly ever used in the United States. The US government, unfortunately, has decided that so the go-to alternative to detention is ankle bracelets, which are you know, the electronic monitoring that are used also for people who are released from, from you know, criminal punishment. Even when detention is used, the US tends to use actual prisons for immigrants. Um, you know, even the, you know, I'm putting family detention centers in quotes, um, but that exist in the United States, look and feel like prisons. They don't look and feel like, you know, residence centers or community centers. They are very restrictive. They treat children and families as, you know, inmates, basically. And, uh, you know, all of these sorts of um, cr criminalizing of, of people who are on the run already just compound trauma. So we have an idea from research of what a more helpful or sort of respectful policy would be. What are the obstacles to implementing that policy as you see them in the United States right now? A basic obstacle is the law. So the law since 1996, actually under former President Clinton with a Republican Congress, passed a law that um, said that um, anyone who is uh, comes to the U.S. border and re requests protection should be detained. So that's the law. But they don't have to be detained, obviously, for the rest of their lives until it, they're determined to be asylum seekers. But they also shouldn't be detained immediately just because they requested protection in the United States. Like That in itself is incredible. Once they determine that this person does have a fear of being returned, they can be released and they should be released. For a good period of time, a big good chunk of time, during the Bush and Obama administration, there were efforts towards reducing the use and duration of detention for children, families, and adults, you know, sort of as separate categories. Um, in 2014, with the arrival of you know, tens of thousands of children from Central America, from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in particular, the Obama administration decided to change their practice and institute a policy, a policy of mandatory detention for children, well, for families, and for children it became a bit more difficult, a bit more complicated. Um, so, it, you know, it's political, it's legal. I, I think it's an unwillingness to take more risk. And I don't mean a risk in terms of national security or public safety, a risk in terms of 
of uh, doing the right thing and believing that most of the United States, most people in the United States, will ultimately see that it's a good decision because it hasn't caused problems. Refugee and migrant issues are very complicated. I mean, they're very, you know, they're a proxy for all kinds of other issues. They're a proxy for how tough are you. They're a proxy for national security. They shouldn't be, but they are. They're a proxy for crime. They're a proxy for, um, you know, our best intentions. They're a proxy for international law. There's all kinds of ways that this community of people become a symbol of something that has nothing to do with them and is very easy, easily manipulated and therefore, um, you know, requires some actual uh, strong and positive exercise of political will to address and that's hard to garner. Obviously, the refugee crisis is not limited to the United States. There are countries in Europe and all over the world that are dealing with a similar problem. Are there models for the United States to follow? Are there other countries that are doing this either more humanely or in a more trauma-informed way or just even a more research-informed way? Different countries do different things well. Um, countries neighboring, a lot of African countries that are neighboring states in internal or external conflict, uh, obviously states that neighbor Iraq and Syria, have been absorbing millions of people. They do let them access education. They let them access health care. Um, access to work or livelihood remains controversial in all of those states. But they are, they are making real efforts, and they are actually not signatories to the Refugee Convention. So these are states that are just doing it because it's the right thing to do. States that are signatory, and particularly states that hold a big stick, so Western, no, the West, <laughs> Europe, the U.S., Canada, are not as welcoming. They find ways to shut their borders. They, um, you know, they push, like Europe is trying to push everyone back out to Turkey, um, even though Turkey just went through an attempted coup. South America in particular is actually had, had some great practices. They obviously have Colombia, and so Colombia has had you know, massive um, internal displacement and refugee population for 30 years. But they have all taken in Colombians, not perfectly, not without their own problems. They fought really hard to get the strongest protection against the detention of children. Um, Mexico, which generally has really good immigration law or refugee law, but not good practice, um, is actually stepping up now and trying to do more. So they are, they are increasing their um, absorption of, of Central Americans who come up, who probably have the intent of getting to the U.S., but they are starting to process more asylum applications in Mexico. Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua have thousands and thousands of applications for protection from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. So I, mean, I think this is a region where we're actually starting to see some really good practices um, and strong prohibitions against detention of children, but the U.S. is not part of that. Ms. Reynolds, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Thank you. For the children and families who make it into the United States, A New Life presents its own series of complications and obstacles. Community service centers are often the lifelines for these people and their gateway to employment, education, and stability. Raquel Farah is Student Services Coordinator for the Bria Public Charter School in Northwest Washington, D.C., which serves immigrant families through computer, ESL, and child development classes. I went to their campus and asked Ms. Farah where her students come from. We have 
a population that reflects, I would say, the immigrant community of Washington, D.C. So we have a, a large Latino population. I think between 70 and 80 percent of our students are from Latin America and are Spanish speaking. Uh, we also have a large Ethiopian population and then students from lots of countries all over all over the world. Some of them come to this country with their children. Some of them have had children here. We have people who have very recently arrived and then people who have been here decades. Uh, but everyone is interested in pursuing their goals and uh, continuing their education. Uh, and so that's, that's where we come in. We try to serve families and help them uh, reach their education goals. What do those education goals tend to be? What we hear from families is that it's very crucial to them to learn English uh, as a survival skill, basically, in this country. And so they're often looking for a better relationship, for example, with their child's school, uh, better communication at their jobs, or they're seeking employment. They're seeking a better communication with their child's doctor, perhaps, or just a better, a smoother way of life. Um, and so that's also where my team comes in as a student services coordinator. A lot of what I do is try to support families in the areas outside of their academics that might present an obstacle to their, to their education. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to connect them to resources in the, in the DC community. So I build a lot of relationships with our community partners, refer our students to different services, um, and then also help them with any day-to-day -day things they might need, such as filling out forms, making phone calls, and building some, some life skills that hopefully they'll, they'll take with them outside of school as well. One thing that our report touches on is the fact that you know children who have gone through a, a cataclysm in their life of moving from one place to another, regardless of what the process was, mm -hmm. that's a huge change a huge event in a child's life that may disrupt their emotional or maybe even cognitive development. How do you and your staff sort of respond to that and address that? Um, well, one of my major roles is to work with the Mary Center for Maternal and Child Health, which is our uh, main medical and social services partner. Um, we're co-located with Mary Center in several places. And one of the ways that they support us is through on-site mental health services. And so we strive to be a trauma-informed school. We recognize that, um, that by nature of working with immigrant families, men, all of them have gone through some sort of major disruption, if not a trauma, and that we really do want to lower the barriers to mental health, social services um, for adults and for children. So we try to offer uh, as much as we can on, on site. You mentioned trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. What does that actually look like in terms of how your classroom is run? In principle, it means that we train our staff to know, to know about the potential consequences of, of trauma, how it can present. Um, how that can present as maybe a behavioral problem or an attention problem or um, an attendance problem. There can be many things that, many symptoms that can be traced back to 
uh, a trauma or a mental health need. Any of those symptoms that our staff see in the different classroom settings where they might be can turn into perhaps a referral to our support services. So we can find out maybe the root, the root cause of a symptom. Can you give us an example of a symptom, an exhibit of the types of trauma that your population tends to experience? The most common example I would say would be poor attendance. So sometimes if a family is exhibiting poor attendance in our program, um, they're not coming to English classes, they're not letting us know what's going on, we try to make sure we're reaching out to them and not, not assuming it's a lack of interest. It could be a scheduling conflict, it could be another obligation, but it also could be maybe depression, maybe not themselves, maybe their children. It could be many things. And so one of my responsibilities is to be really proactive and reaching out to our families, checking in with them, visiting them at home if we need to, and seeing if we can, we can connect them to something that would help with that. Um, you know, I've had, I've had students who tell me, you know, I, I can't get out of bed today. I keep replaying this terrible thing that happened to me on my immigration journey. And I can say, well, how about, would you like tomorrow? Maybe you can meet with our therapist and we can see if that's something that, that works for you that would help you feel better. If you could make one systemic change to your clients' lives, your students' lives, uh, what would it be? What is the major obstacle that you see them all dealing with and what would you change institutionally, systemically, if you could? So if I could change one thing, it would be the bureaucracies that immigrant families have to navigate to access services for their children, whether they're born here or not. Um, there are so many layers of paperwork, of people you have to go see for every step of every process it really creates a culture of fear of people feeling like they're being judged being discriminated and it is so so difficult for families to access basic necessities especially when they're newly arrived moving beyond trauma was funded by the annie e casey foundation and you can find the full report and executive summary at our website childtrends.org. Thanks once again for listening. This has been episode one of Child Trends on Topic.